Welcome to part four, the brain generates the reality that we experience. When we look at a rock, what we are seeing is not the rock, but the effect of the rock upon us. A quote from Burton Russell. If you look at the rock and see it, it is because your brain generates its image, not like a camera, but rather by building it from scratch. In the first chapter, we used vision as an example of how the brain constructs the reality we experience based on sensory inputs. We went over the multiple changes involved in ultimately seeing. Shall I reiterate them here briefly while attempting to avoid scientific jargons? The deal? Okay, so let's go ahead. Before you can even look at the rock, your eyes move and perhaps your head as well, so that light bouncing off the rock can enter inside your eyes. These movements are part of the effect the rock has on you. Once you are looking directly at the rock, your eyes make minuscule movements so that light emerging from the contours and salient features are focused on a tiny area at the back of your eye, the fovea. It is the act of looking at the rock that causes these miniature eye movements. Light originating from the rock will change the shape of small molecules, which themselves will change the shape of larger molecules, which will in turn kickstart multiple chemical and electrical changes inside your eyes. A series of electrical impulses will then be sent to your brain along your optic nerve, modulating its activity. Information about specific aspects of the rock's feature, its location, its fine details, and its various shades of color will be sent separately to different areas of the brain to be merged only later into a, diff into a coherent image. Up to 50 different brain areas can be involved in the process of looking at the rock. Avoiding jargon beyond this point is a task I am not up to. Feel free to go back to the first part of the podcast. The take-home message is that looking at the rock elicits complex events in your brain. The operating word is elicit. Therefore, Bertrand Russell had the insight to understand this fundamental concept. Do allow me one science word, though. Interneurons. Ultimately, interneurons, the neurons between sensors and effectors, are responsible for generating the reality you perceive. You project the experience of a rock as occurring outside your brain. You look at a rock and take it for granted that it's there, immutable and unalterable. You do not need to deliberately activate each of the many processes that take place in generating the image. What a relief, otherwise I predict severe headaches. If you do experience severe headaches from the hangover after enjoyed, having enjoyed fermented libations with your cocktail party friend, whom you shared that we are blind on average 4.5 hours of our waking days, 
then you might see two rocks, or just a single blurry one. Or if you took hallucinogenic drugs, the rock might change color or transform into a monster or even a cathedral. Your brain determines what you see. You can reinforce the illusion by touching the rock. Again, touching will induce changes in brain activity that will be synchronized with the creation of its image using multisensory integration. Bertrand Russell could have said, When we touch a rock, what we feel is not the rock, but the effect of the rock upon our brain. I liberally switched to brain instead of us to avoid the confusion that the rock touches our body directly, but not our brain. We could devote an entire chapter on all the unconscious events that influence how we define the rock in its context. Some players to consider. Its distance, evaluated by stereoscopic vision, that's binocular. By moving our body to induce what we call a parallax. By counting how many steps are required to move towards it. By noting that its perceived size changes as you get closer. By the presence of glare or not. By its color motifs by its shadow and the shadows casted nearby trees on the rock by the nearby trees, by noting the location of the sun, by experiencing the memory of having seen this rock before and how you might have felt then, etc., etc., when you think of all cerebral activity generated by the rock, you realize, here's a cheap shot, that the rock truly rocks. While interneurons evolve as coordinators of muscle activation, as an offshoot, also called exaptation, they form intrinsically active networks that generate a multisensory predictive interpretation of the outside world, which led to a further offshoot, a prediction that is independent of any sensory input, which we know as feelings, thoughts, self, even we call the soul. Interneurons have no sensory receptors that lead to conscious experience. The self is the same as a predictive mental model. It is part of it. It is it. The use of words and terms are a matter of intense debate and contention. You might say that the brain has anatomically distinct areas devoted to respective tasks, such as promoter function, planning and action, and motor the action itself. If we consider interneurons in the motor cortex alone, studies in rodents have shown roles in sensory integra integration, behavioral strategizing, working memory, and decision making. Therefore, not only definitions can vary between terms, but also areas bearing specific names. The use of neutral terms such as frontal cortex instead of motor might be more encompassing when it comes to defining functions. As Anil Seth stated in its succinct but to the point book, 32nd Brain, I quote, Cognitive functions are neither fully localized nor wholly distributed in the brain. Each function depends on a complex but specific network of interacting brain region.
closing quotation. The concept here is that interneurons interpose themselves between sensors and effectors. Thus, we are oblivious to the activity of interneurons. However, we have developed tools to study them, to sense them in a way. As we discussed before, vision is the dominating sense when it comes to discovering our physical world. No exception here, we sense these senseless interneurons by depicting them visually. Some interneurons are particularly, in fact, stunningly photogenic. They are just simply beautiful. But we need tools in order to see them. One of the first to reveal interneurons visually was Camillo Golgi. In 1873, he relied on his silver impregnation method. Golgi hardened thin slices of tissue in potassium bichromate and ammonia to then immerse them in a silver nitrate solution. At that time, Golgi considered the stunning images as his reazione nera, or the black reaction as representing diffuse nerve networks, he thought, as opposed to individual cells. We didn't know at that time. As hard as it might seem to believe today, nobody had realized the implication of his discovery. By chance, after 14 years had elapsed, neuroanatomist Ramon y Cajal visited psychiatrist Luis Cimarro's house in Madrid, where he first saw a Golgi impregnated preparation, tweaked by Simaro, with his very own eyes and the assistance of a microscope. It was love at first sight. In the makeshift laboratory set up in his kitchen, Cahal hunted for cells in the garden of the gray matter. The operating word is cells, as opposed to network or reticulum. It was Cahal who confirmed the neuron doctrine by establishing that nervous systems are composed of individual neurons, each having distinct anatomical features. He characterized thousands of different neurons and their networks across a wide variety of species, developmental stages, and diseases. Cahal was on fire. Contrasting jellyfish and cum jellies, where he described two types of neurons, sensory neurons and motoneurons, with worms, Cahal noted a third class of neurons. He wrote, open quotation, but another element complicates it, and its, more, its mere appearance marks all the progress, enormous, all the superiority of worms over the cilantrates. This new element is the intermediate or association neuron. With the association neuron, the multicellular compound truly becomes an animal. Sensitive arousal, however, localized in its, in, it is in the point of the skin, is no longer confined. It does not only bring about the reaction of the muscle fiber located in its zone of influence, all or part of the other fibers are also set in motion, depending on the intensity of the excitation, and the whole animal can, if necessary, vibrate and revolt at the slightest shock. Close quotation. 
with his astute description of intermediate or association neurons, Cahal had anticipated the relevance of interneurons. He poetically suggested that interneurons were, open quotation, the mysterious butterflies of the soul, whose beating of wings may one day reveal to us the secret of the mind, close quotation. Referring to the work of an equally insightful Italian psychiatrist, Ernesto Lugaro, Cajal wrote, open quotation, Thus, according to Lugaro, the intellectual process is linked to the existence of interneuron connections, close quotation. Cajal added more visionary speculation to his 1909-1911 magnus opus, specifically linking interneurons with the generation of the limited reality we experience. Open quotation. During its life, each animal therefore does not have in its brain all the possible representation nor all the possible association of these. It has only the representation and combination of representation currently most useful for the conservation of its species. The spirit of severe economy which reigns in nature allows it, in fact, to have only the cerebral apparatus of association most suitable for its defense and the perpetuation of its species, in a word, the apparatus best suited to its current condition of existence. But come new conditions, new needs, like those created in humans by civilization, and most probably the mechanism of these brain neurons of association is changing and improving. It may also be that under the influence of these new conditions, aberrant intercellular relations occur, which would explain well the genesis of certain secular errors with deep roots, such as the belief in free will, among others. Cahal, 1909-1911. Close quotation. In addition to the classic butterfly-like interneurons, Cahal described the four types of neurons in higher vertebrates, such as human, the psychomotor neuron, which is also between two neurons. The psychomotor neuron is now commonly known as a projection neuron. Here are Cahal's comments, open quotation. The psychomotor neuron picks up with increasing clarity a larger set of more complicated impressions. From there it transmits with ever-increasing precision its order to the other nervous centers, developing here the activity of the motor neurons, inhibiting there the automatic reactions, the reflexes arising from the ganglia. He thus centralizes in him psychomotor corpuscle, the functional solidarity of the whole being, solidarity just now rough despite the neuron of association. Then, without a doubt, awareness of personality and unity, memory, intelligence, will are awakened. Much more sophisticated means of defense and conservation. The being entirely dominated by the psychomotor neuron is more and more powerful in the struggle for life. End quotation. What Cahal inferred over a hundred years ago is in line with the process of sensory-motor transformation. Here's a quote from Aristotle, 384-322 to 322 BC. 
open quotation. The soul never thinks without a mental picture. Close quotation. We are going to move to another hero here. Uh, in 1930, Edward Chase Tolman and Charles Hunsick showed that rats actively build an internal visual image of their external environment, which allows them navigating complex mazes. Tolman referred to this representation of the features and landmark of the external environment as a cognitive map. He postulated that with multiple exposure to a maze, rats memorizing multiple environmental cues to build increasingly more accurate internal representation of the maze occurred. As Cahal, Tolman was also a visionary. Based on his findings, he hypothesized that humans do not passively respond to their external environment, but rather act on beliefs, attitudes, changing conditions, and that they are driven by goals. In the seventh episode of this podcast, we will explore how these cognitive maps are associated with various cognitive biases. At a more encompassing level, new cognitive maps are the actual mental models with our brain, which our brain manipulates not only to represent our external and internal environments, but also to stimulate diverse outcomes and choose the most adaptive output. The profoundly impacting concept that we unconsciously create mental models as an interface between sensory input and motor output was first proposed by Kenneth Craig in his 1943 book, The Nature of Explanation. He is our second hero. Craig put forward that thinking consists of manipulating internal representation of the physical world which we have evolved to interact with. Here we have our second protagonist. During his short life, March 29, 1914 to May 7, 1945, Kenneth Craig became a pioneer of cognitive science by articulating that the mind is a symbol processor, exhibiting the unique ability of making predictions used for generating outputs. Whether Cahal ever met Craig, let alone was exposed to his groundbreaking ideas, is unlikely. Fantasizing on an imaginary gathering of the two minds, what would they have said to each other? In 1934, Craig was 20 years old when Cahal died at the age of 83. Had they merged their concepts they each pioneered. Both thinkers could have concluded that thinking and the sensory motor transformation are one, on, only one. Craig defined three steps involved in thinking. First, translating specific external processes, that is sensory inputs, into an internal representation in terms of words, numbers, or other symbols. Second, Deriving other symbols from these sensory inputs by some sort of inferential process. Three, and last, retranslating these symbols into an output, which can be motor or awareness that the prediction has been achieved. In this manner, thinking allows considering possible futures to ultimately generate the most adaptive output. So keep that in mind 
we are future predictors, and we'll get back to that. The foundation laid by Craig established that thoughts and feelings are indissociable. They represent the same symbol-based predictive process. Predictive is the operational word here. Craig considered that the brain had evolved to be a predictor, while what we call the mind or soul are consequential to this evolutionary process. In his words, open quotation, My hypothesis then is that thought models or parallels reality. So thought models is a verb here, models. So thought models or parallels reality. That is essential feature is not the mind, the self, sense, data, nor proposition, but symbolism. And that this symbolism is largely of the same kind as that which is familiar to us in mechanical devices which aid thought and calculation. Another quotation. If the organism carries a small-scale model of external reality and of its own possible action within its head, it is able to try out various alternative conclude with is the best of them, react to future situations before they arise, utilize the knowledge of past events in dealing with the present and future, and in every way to react in a much fuller, safer, and more competent manner of the, to the emergencies which face it. Close quotation. By including Craig in our reflection on mental models, we add the element of prediction. I program what I'm going to do so that my action is optimally adaptive with the most likely prediction. Think of the herring illusion mentioned in the first part of this podcast. You can look at it again using your browser. Herring illusion. What we experience is this, in this visual illusion is the prediction of what will happen in about 100 milliseconds. When a projectile such as Bertrand Russell's rock is directed at you, a rapid action is elemental to avoid a potentially fatal outcome. If we could go back in time, we could witness a most dramatic example involving our second protagonist, or hero, Craig himself. It is May 7, 1945, two days prior to the end of the Second World War in Europe. Kenneth Craig was overworked, heading covert research for the war efforts during the day and doing his own personal research and writing at night. Craig was riding his bicycle in central Cambridge. O.L. Zangwill recounts in his 1980 homage to Craig, open quotation, Never an accomplished cyclist, he came into collision with the partly open door of a stationary car in King's Parade and was thrown from his machine and apparently struck by an approaching lorry. He never regained consciousness and died later the same night. At the inquest, a verdict of accidental death was returned and no blame was attached to either driver. Close quotation. A moment of inattention abruptly terminated Craig's prescient quests. 
While he remains largely unknown, Kenneth Craig did not even make the list of the 100 most influential psychologists. There is still so much to learn from Craig's acumens. The philosopher of mind, Dan Williams, mentions, open quotation, I think that Craig had in mind a wide range of potential uses of prediction, the capacity of the brain to predict the likely sensory consequences of the organism behavior in order to overcome signaling delays, flexible predictive tracking mechanism, the ability to use predictive models to represent features of the world the organism does not currently have access to. Close quotation. Here's a quote from a poet that I like very much, Clarice Lispector. Open quotation. I am blinded. I open my eyes wide and only see. But the secret that I neither see nor feel. Could I be making here a true orgy of what's behind Toth? Close quotation. The reality we experience is not only a model but also a time predictor. The statement that our brain predicts potential futures would still surprise most. The time window of the future depends on the nature of the events that dictate the required adaptive output, i.e. survival and reproduction. On the small scale, we have the herring illusion pointing to a prediction in the range of 100 milliseconds. There is another example. Think of the cocktail party and your line that we're blind about 4.5 hours per day. Yes, microsaccades and the unconscious movements between fixations um, during which you are blind, 4 hours total. And the blinking, about 30 minutes total. So, 4 and a half hours these micro-movements keep the eyes steady in expectation of visual stimuli. There is extensive experimental evidence that microsaccades are suppressed just before a visual event is predicted. It makes common sense. If a time window of 100 milliseconds can determine life or death, then one cannot afford to be blind during this decisive moment. Therefore, when the brain predicts a potential event, the microsaccades stop. Seeing a threat visually is associated with stopping microsaccade within the time prediction of danger to one's physical integrity, a tiger jumping at you, for instance. However, more intriguingly is that these microsaccades inhibitions are not only restricted to visual predictions. It is perhaps counterintuitive, but the prediction of touching something also coincides with the inhibition of ocular microsaccades. Here is the experiment. Human subjects are asked to perform a purely tactile task, that is, finding tactile cues with their fingers. No vision involved, just touch. Imagine the participant fixating a point on a computer screen in front of them while both hands are laid on a table either side of the computer. One hand was used to detect a tactile stimulus while the other was used to press a button. While fixating a computer screen in front of them, the task was to press a button with one hand when they felt vibration to the tip of one finger of the other hand. 
being faster or slower than 60 Hz. When they expected the change in vibration frequency, the subject stopped microsaccades. One might ask, what is the point? Does microsaccade inhibition play a role in finding a tactile target with your finger? Well, it does. The investigators showed that in instances when microsaccades occurred around the time of tactile target presentation, the performance was reduced. The gist here is that our brain performs intricate tasks with one ultimate goal, predicting the future to produce the most adaptive output. These tasks entail a crosstalk between sensory modalities. Here we have an example of vision and touch, but this is likely the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more to learn about how our brain generates reality and predicts the most likely futures and coordinates the most optimal output. Time scales encompass a wide range. Now onto a larger scale. Here is a famous and well-accepted example with a different context. Pavlov's dogs were conditioned to have access to food only after hearing a metronome. Once trained, the sound of the metronome alone induced salivation, while timescales and context vary extensively in the process of thinking the commonality is that ultimately species have evolved to produce optimal predictive adaptive responses for survival and reproduction. Prediction is essential for adaptive success. As Craig put it in 1943, open quotation, one of the most fundamental properties of thoughts is its power of predicting events. Close quotation. He added, open quote, only this internal model of reality, this working model, enables us to predict events which have not yet occurred in the physical world, a process which saves time, expense, and even life. End quotation. How so very ironic that Craig's death involved the convergence of external events and the lack or perhaps the impossibility of an adaptive response leading to a fatal outcome being crashed by a lorry. At least two Homo sapiens and their respective interactions with technological apparatus, the one who opened the car door and the lorry driver approaching fast and perhaps too close to the stop car contributed to Craig's premature death. What did Craig mean by adaptive success? Living organisms are in a state of dynamic equilibrium with their environment. If they do not maintain this equilibrium, they die. If they do maintain if it, they show a degree of spontaneity, variability, and purposiveness of response unknown in the non-living world. This is what is meant by adaptation to environment. Its essential features its, is stability, that is, the ability to withstand disturbances. Craig put forward that the predictive nature of sensory motor transformations is flexible, which went beyond the simple correlations between sensory inputs and outputs described in the behaviorist in his days, described by the behaviorist in his days. Cortical and subcortical circuits create internal models as a program for action. To interact with the physical world, 
sensory inputs update such models. As we mentioned before in the first part of this podcast, sensory information modulates the construct of reality by our brain. Our eyes are not cameras sending images to the brain. Rather, our eyes modulate the images created by the brain. Close your eyes and you will see images. Moreover, sensory information itself is influenced by previous experience, adding another level of subjectivity. The decisions about what we are doing depend on unconscious internal models that are constantly built and updated by learned sensory inputs, a process known as evidence accumulation. Studies of neural activity and animal models have shared light on the actual underlying mechanism. Sticking with vision as a sensory modality, we can pinpoint at least two brain regions, both in the cortex, the lateral intraparietal area of the posterior parietal cortex, and the frontal eye field division of the prefrontal cortex. The neural mechanisms that dictate what we perceive, sensory, and what we do, effector, are interdependent. There are dynamic interrelations between input and output. Perception and action are co-determined and sensory input that lead to perception derive meaning in light of task-dependent goals and the actions that are selected to achieve them. One might think such feature is unique to us humans, generously including primates perhaps, but however, the reality is that most findings were obtained using rats and mice. In fact, recent findings from Stel Grindner reveal that lampreys which date back to more than 560 million years, possess internal maps of the outside world, retinotopic and somatotopic, respectively built from visual and tactile sensory inputs conveyed through the thalamus. Why does this matter? We erroneously ignored animals that lacked a cortex and thought that these older ancestors essentially relied on olfactory inputs for their survival and reproduction. We were wrong. Lampreys have the equivalent of a cortex known as the pallium. We also ignored birds for similar reasons, despite the visionary work of Harvey Carton published more than half a century ago which clearly established the occurrence of similar visual information processing as in human, such as binocular vision. In 1969, Harvey Carton correctly pinpointed the dorsal ventricular ridge and adjoining dorsomedial pallial vults as the region capable of refined sensory motor and cognitive operation. So we see that in many species. There is accumulating evidence based on Carton's findings that the brains of birds possess all of the features allowing the generation of a multisensorial reality. Moreover, there is also evidence from Drosophila, yes, fruit flies, of simpler yet defined mental models called associative loop. Back to our first protagonist, Ramon y Cajal. 
He also foresaw that brains are characterized by their ability to generate a single and integrated perception that corresponds to all the stimuli, which allows interacting with the external world. Taking inspiration from the father of experimental psychology, William James, Cahal also put forward that these multisensory representations are plastic, alongside the neurons and networks they form to generate these representations. Even in the fully developed brain, neurons can move and change shape. Considering that the healthy adult human brain loses over a thousand neurons every day, such level of plasticity is essential. Your neurons die all the time. Neuronal death is a fact of life. The synapses that neurons establish between themselves are also remarkably malleable. Simply remember the changes in the retina circuitry when transiting between different background light levels. As you wake up, transiting from dark to light, the levels of dopamine and nitric oxide increase across the retina proportionally to light exposure. Exposure to dim light prevents electrical coupling between rod bipolar cells and A2 amacrine cells, while permitting electrical coupling between rods and cones. Under daylight, coupling ceases between rods and cones photoreceptors. We can regard these events as a switch preventing any rod signals from modulating brain activity, favoring fine detail visions mediated by cones in daylight. Just imagine if the highly sensitive rods with their poor visual equity were to contaminate our daylight vision. The changes in retrocircuitry also contribute to maintaining contrast sensitivity relatively stable and over a colossal range of light adaptation covering 10 to the power of 10 units of light levels. Example of plasticity, sensory substitution. Technology is at a level that electronic devices can substitute one sensory modality for another. The application is highly relevant to blindness. A blind person can receive mild, pin-like stimulations across their back, driven by a camera, above their head, which transduces visual signals into touch. Even subtler is when the touch stimulations are distributed across the thong, and a miniature camera and transducer are directly attached to, a special, to special glasses. Another ingenious approach is to transduce pixels from a camera input into sequential sounds of different pitches, with training sounds elicit activity in the visual cortex. Yes, these are powerful examples of the brain's capacity for plasticity. History puts our second protagonist devoting his genius to tackling the puzzle of plasticity, building his own tools, cryic, focused on the mechanism underlying light adaptation as part of his doctoral dissertation um, published in 1940. That was five years before his ultimately untimely death at the age of 31. He applied his findings to improve night vision in airplane pilots during the Second World War. In retrospect, Craig was onto something highly relevant. How does the brain build the reality we experience? One cannot help but ponder the wonders that Craig's beautiful mind might have produced 
had he lived longer? What links would he have made between neural circuits and behavior? Let us allow the fantasy of conversing with Craig about retina-based light adaptation and more, more of the many instances in which diffusion of molecules can modify neural circuits. Such wireless effects typify how the same neuronal circuit can mediate drastically different behavioral outcomes. We see this happening in the limbic systems underlying emotional states, where molecules known as neuropeptides act at a distance inside the brain to control synaptic communication and dictate how we respond to internal and external stimuli. So many subjects could have fueled Craig's astute conception of predictive mental models. Indulge me in one more example, which I think you will find exceedingly pertinent with regard to the plasticity of how our brain constructs representation of our body. I would have asked Craig to participate in the rubber hand illusion. He would have placed both hands on a table, but the partition would have prevented him from seeing his left hand. Instead, he would have seen it in front of him. What? He would have seen a rubber hand, which of course he would have known was not his own hand. Here is the trick. I would have simultaneously brushed both his left hand and the rubber hand with a paintbrush, synchronizing changes in pressure, rhythms, and locations on his different fingers. After 10 minutes, Craig might have appropriated the rubber hand in front of him as his own left hand. Feel free to watch videos by searching rubber hand illusion. Finally, I would have mentioned how neurologist Dr. Ramachandran developed an approach to move phantom limbs. Patients who have undergone amputation of a limb can experience the sensation of this absent limb. In some cases, the sensation is painful because of its felt position and stillness. Yes, we are talking about mental models of non-existent limbs. Remember... Your brain generates what you feel, regardless of whether it is real or not. Using mirrors, Ramachandran makes the patient see the opposite limb on the side that corresponds to the amputated absent limb. After some training, the patient appropriates the intact limb as the amputated limb, allowing finally the phantom limb to be moved in a more comfortable position. What a relief! With this information, Craig would have offered links and context on how the brain wired is wired to generate the reality we experience and to provide unconscious predictions that determine our actions. Just imagine for one moment what Craig would have accomplished if he had had access to functional brain imaging technology. For the grand finale, with the luxury of Craig living still, he would have witnessed what virtual reality combined with head-mounted cameras showing one's own body and multisensory stimulation can do. Nothing less than out-of-body experience. This ultimate illusion is known as the otoscopic experience. Feel free to look um, at it with your browser. Otoscopic experience from the ancient Greek self and watcher. Watching yourself as being detached from you, so out-of-body 
experience. I bet you Craig would have loved to be a subject. He did experiments on himself a great deal to an excessive and dangerous extent. It is reported that Craig looked directly at the sun and poked his own eyes over more than 75 years after his death. It feels as if we just barely have begun percolating Craig's profound insight. But let us be optimistic. The data are coming, even from magicians, or should I say illusionists. We need to digest them to make them available, because this is reality. Of note is that there have been concrete application in artificial intelligence and robotics. Artificial neural networks are based on Bayesian models. This means that the robot's artificial neural networks must be able to infer the cause of the sensory inputs, as opposed to the sensory inputs themselves modulating the network. This is a, called a top-down model. The notion of top-down means that each of the robot's perceptual worlds depends on its own individual imaginative abilities, on its computing power to calculate the, per the respective statistical probability of each possible imagined worlds. That's a lot. Because they are almost limitless imagined worlds, Bayesian-based sensing cannot be completely flawless. Robots need to be trained by previously exposing them to mind-boggling permutation of possible environments in order to recognize the nature of specific sensory inputs. Could computer models see optical illusions? The answer is yes. They can be fooled, as we can. In line with the Bayesian approach, computerized neural networks must already have a program model algorithm of each of the distinct visual aspects that together create the illusions and be trained by repeated, repeated exposures to the illusions. It is highly unlikely that our brain works in a strict Bayesian fashion. However, a Bayesian approach does provide promising results with artificial intelligence such as in designing machines that learn from the data acquired through experience. In part 8 of this podcast, we will discuss the other side of the medal. Artificial intelligence can be a wild beast to tame. The Science of Magic Magician hack the main feature underlying our intelligence and construct a bias interpretation in the spectator by using different forms or of misdirection. The surprising resolution of a magic trick is, in this sense, comparable to the effect that can be produced by a visual illusion or by being suddenly aware of a false memory. In all these cases, unconscious assumptions have been broken. A quote from Kriroga, 2016. Magic is a powerful tool to decipher how mental models are built. Functional brain imaging of subjects being misdirected when viewing magic tricks had heightened activity in two regions, the left dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex involved in monitoring cognitive conflicts and the anterior cingulate cortex involved in resolving these conflicts. There is a violation of what logical outcomes should result from a familiar action. Functional brain imaging of subjects experiencing impossible outcomes showed higher activity in a region called the head of the caudate nucleus. 
This region is involved in processing changes in the contingency between action and outcome. In his book, Experiencing the Impossible, the Science of Magic, Gustav Kuhn explains how magicians are astute exploiters of how our brain generates the reality we experience. They demonstrate how the brain constructs a subjective reality using assumption based on relatively little and ambiguous information. Back to the human brain. There are two important aspects for predicting potential futures and for generating the most adaptive response, learning and memory. In fact, from an evolutionary perspective, learning and memory evolved to do just that. Pavlov's dogs are a flagrant example. They associated that the reward, food, becomes available only after the presentation of a specific sound, a metronome. The process of learning and memory accounts for their salivation when exposed to the metronome sound alone. Another example from a family life involving a carton of milk. As a caring single parent home alone in the evening, you ventured in the rain to buy milk from the corner store, planning for tomorrow's family breakfast. You get up early, earlier than anyone, and... Half asleep, you open the fridge door, reaching eyes open, half opened, for the milk. On automatic pilot, you aim precisely at its location without even thinking about it. Also flawlessly, you grasp and you lift, but unexpectedly, you are brutally pulled out of your lethargy by the rocketed projection of the milk container up in the air. You unconsciously overestimated its weight. You are learning and memory prepared you for a heavy receptacle, but not for the nocturnal indulgence of your three teenagers in copious cereal bowls alongside clumsy spills. At this moment, your senses capture the dubious puddles on the floor by the empty bowl's laden counter. You also remember the late-night escapade of your teens that they had, and you, now fully awake, deftly reconstruct the scene of the crime. There is accumulating evidence linking neural networks and behavior. Learning and memory also entail modifying neural networks, both anatomically and biochemically. What if I told you that this plasticity and the associated behavior could be transferred between two organisms? How? Well, in 2018, Bidikarats and colleagues trained sea slugs, or aplesia, to learn a specific task and then transfer genetic information in the form of RNA to untrained aplysia, which provided them with the ability to remember. Without training, naive aplysia learns solely based on having received genetic information and translating it into proteins. Which proteins, you might ponder, in neurons that mediate several forms of long-term memory and aplysia, the DNA repair enzyme polyADP ribose polymerase 1, or PARP1, is activated. In virtually all of the eukaryotic cells tested, the addition of polyADP ribosyl groups to proteins, polyADP ribosylation, occurs as a response to DNA damage. Thus, the finding of activation of PARP1 during learned and learning 
and its requirement for long-term memory might come as a surprise. Cohen, Aroman, and colleagues suggested that fast and transient decondensation of chromatin structure by polyADP ribosylation enables the transcription needed to form long-term memory without strand breaks in DNA. The requirement for polyADP ribosylation to long-term memory formation also extends to mammals such as mice. The conclusion is that information about learning and plasticity can be passed on between species by modulating the expression of specific genes. In an experimental setting, we can modify determined behavior by transferring genetic information in the form of RNA, at least in gastropod and potentially in mice. The field is still in its infancy. Another mean of modulating the expression of specific genes is epigenetics. Strictly speaking, epigenetic refers to an inheritable ability for certain genes to have their activity modified without needing to alter their sequence. Changes in activity typically involve DNA methylation and histone modification through non-genetic factors such as external agents or as part of normal development. The list of agents is almost limitless. It includes your diet, where you live, your social interactions, your education, your sleep pattern, your physical activity, and diseases such as cancer, diabetes, Parkinson, and Alzheimer's, just to name a few. Factors susceptible of being associated with turning on or off the expression of specific genes and their specific function encompass basically any aspect of how you were brought up, starting from the womb all the way to aging. Susceptibility to these factors is what makes us all different. We all have minor differences in gene sequences, which are not mutation. They are called polymorphisms. These polymorphisms are passed along generation, hence the inheritable nature of epigenetics. Care must be taken to extract signal from noise in this jungle, where again one can attribute changes in neural networks and behaviors by solely invoking epigenetics. It would be counterproductive here to navigate the intricate meanders of this vast expanding field, which touches all aspects of biology from evolution to development, cancer, and most diseases, including mental health. For instance, there are numerous studies reporting that polymorphisms in genes involved with serotonin neurotransmission or associated with depression and anxiety. At the moment, results are often conflicting and some attempts at replicating studies have failed. Regardless, the field represents a new frontier for research and will occupy us for many years to come. What is being revealed here is that our environment does affect how our brain is wired and therefore how we might perceive and anticipate reality. If we recapitulate, our brain generates the reality we experience and our brain also predicts the most likely events in order to generate optimally adaptive responses. By optimally adaptive, I mean the responses that will promote survival and reproduction. These are the two reasons why we have evolved, why DNA has been passed on over 3.8 billion years across generation, vertically, and between organisms, horizontally. 
Our brain has evolved to detect only the physical modalities that add, relate to survival and reproduction. Our brain detects these features, internal and external, to our bodies by modeling these very physical aspects. As mentioned above, bef before in the podcast, has enough shoot of this capacity to model the word using sensory inputs, our brain produces models constantly, which are most often not fed by sensory modulation. Learning and memory feed these models and predictors. Moreover, what we just flew over with epigenetics is that these environmental factors themselves can determine how our brain generates and anticipates reality. By producing models without sensory input and motor outputs, the brain can act as a hamster in a wheel, endlessly spinning, ruminating. This exaptation can be a curse or could be a superb source of infinite creativity. The distinction between both is blurry. Highly imaginative people often walk on a fine thread. The curse comes from sp when spontaneous models represent false threats fed by boundless inventiveness. One notable aspect as threat detectors is the region of the cortex called the amygdala, which receives sensory inputs directly from the sensory thalamus for vision and hearing, or from the various sensory regions of the cortex for smell, taste, and touch. The amygdala acts as a gate that determines whether a distress signal should be sent to the prefrontal cortex so that we become aware and can act accordingly. That's very, very simplified. A simplistic view is that the neurotransmitter serotonin prevents the signal to be sent. Lower levels of serotonin release are associated with heightened levels of anxiety and depression. The prefrontal cortex receives false stress. Persistent signaling of false stress is maladaptive but can be treated. Some antidepressants act by blocking the reuptake of serotonin and the level of these synapses at the level of these synapses which prolongs the action of serotonin and diminishes the threat signals. These drugs are known as SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. The point is one can make a link with the strong interest of the epigenetics of genes involved in serotonin signaling as a mean to better understand why some people are more prone to suffer from anxiety and depression. The truth is most of us do experience anxiety and depression at some point in our lives, but at different levels, duration, and frequency. One important point related to mental health is that the reality generated by the brain goes beyond the physical world itself. It generates your sense of self, but we are oblivious to all these processes. Because we are our brains, which create our sense of self, we have no privileged access to this invisible process. From an outsider perspective, quoted from Bruce Hood in his book The Self-Illusion, we are oblivious to the mechanism that creates what we consciously experience. This is true for all sensory modalities as well as for the sense of self. In fact, your own sense of self is a creation of your brain based in part on how you think your social world, real and now increasingly more digital, perceives you. Bruce Hood puts forward that it is the existence of others and our interaction with them, direct or indirect, 
that defines who we are. Another quote from Bruce Hood, The Self-Illusion. We cannot be aware of the underlying processes that create it, and yet we feel it as coherent. You never see that you are a reflection of the others around you because you cannot easily see how you change. And we don't easily see ourselves switching from one to another until it is pointed out to us by those around us who recognize that the context has changed. End quotation. Example of changes include changes in accent, mood, being more charming or defensive or overcompensating due to a feeling of insecurity or low confidence, etc. We have a tendency to linger in the past. Our brain is wired to ruminate past memories. Together with this apparent curse, our brain protects us from the true nature of the external world and from the mechanism taking place to create what we perceive and experience, such as what we see and feel we are. That's the self. Cognitive dissonance protects us from ruminating over failed goals. Positive biases keep us motivated. Free will gives us grounds for praise and blame, and ownership of our actions conducive to morality. Decision-making gives us the illusion of control. Without these cognitive illusions, we would not be able to function because we would be overwhelmed by the true complexity of the hidden processes and mechanism that control us. That's again quoted by from Bruce Hood, The Self-Illusion. Isop, Isop's fable. I thought these grapes were ripe, but I see now they are quite sour. Here lies a paradox, one that is present in this very podcast. We are drawing our attention on that which has evolved to be hidden. However, we are not trying to be conscious as the mechanisms happen, but our endeavor is to learn about their nature, to be humble, to be empowered, to have a more encompassing view, grasp and awareness of the reality we navigate in. We are trying to become more mindful. Yes, mindfulness is a trendy word. Mindfulness, just being able to stop and observe. In her book, When Things Fall Apart, Tibetan Buddhist nun Pema Chodron states, We have a concept of ourself that we reconstruct moment by moment and reflexively try to protect. End quote. As threat detectors, our brain has evolved to protect against all threats, real or perceived, reflecting on these false threats persistently, manifesting themselves as revving thoughts. Chodron proposes that we, open quotes, get to know them, see how they hook us, see how they color our perception of reality, see how they aren't at all that solid. Close quotation. Adding my ten cents to our wisdom, I would say, observe your perceived pain, realizing there is no threats, no threats. Live your pain for the creation that it is. Wanting to change this feeling will give it a life of its own that it does not deserve. We extract meaning and noise. Being mindful means simply recognizing and acknowledging biases. However, we are rarely mindful unless you devote your life to meditation, contemplation, mindfulness, or stillness. 
Even then, your experience of reality generated by your brain remains biased and personal. As Steven Pinker puts it in his book, The Stuff of Thought, I open quotation. Humans construct an, un, an understanding of the world that is very different from the analog flow of sensation the world presents to them. They package their experience into object and events. They assemble these objects and events into propositions, which they take to be characterization of real and possible worlds. The characterization are highly schematic. They pick out some aspects of a situation and ignore others, allowing the same situation to be constructed in multiple ways. End quotation. We are connection detectors, patterns detectors. We can see a pattern in random events and call it ghosts, spirit, paranormal. We ignore all the noise and fixate on what might be a pattern, like the apparition of a face in random noise. Yes, especially faces. For example, the old man on the mountain in Franconia, New Hampshire, USA. Rosh Bonhomme in Jasper National Park, Alberta, Canada. Smiley face in Gal Crater and face on Mars in the Sidonia region, both on Mars, which was unlikely <laughs> visited by aliens, at least not as we anthropomorphize them. The manner in which we detect patterns in randomness, a phenomenon called pareidolia, is in fact pretty telling of our personality. The Rorschach inkblot tests blanks on pareidolia as a means to obtain information about the person's mental state. Study subjects are asked to verbalize what they see and standardize random inkblot patterns. Another perspective to appreciate our biases is the argument by Alfred Korzybski that we will never be able to fully understand the world because of the limitation imposed by our nervous system and the languages we developed. In, this, in his book, The Map is Not the Territory, Korbinsky articulates that the brain and language thus represent filters that preclude an objective comprehension of reality. Back to the carton of milk, which led to an overestimate of its weight and spill, well, bloody teens, but we still love them. Learning and memory prepared you for a heavy receptacle, but not for the nocturnal indulgence of your te teenagers in copious cereal bowls, leaving the carton of milk almost empty. Let's expand on this example as a means to understand the highly personal way in which we construct reality. Continuing with Steven Pinker's The Stop of Thoughts, we rely on an inventory of basic units, events, I bought the milk late last night. I woke up to prepare breakfast. States, I was not quite awake when I walked to the fridge. Things, the fridge, the door, the shelves, the carton of milk, substances, a liquid milk filling a square carton, places, the position of the milk in the fridge, and goals, getting the milk out of the fridge. Your brain analyzes in distinct regions all these units to produce the unified action that explains why you successfully grabbed the milk but exerted too much power in pulling it out of the fridge. I'm oversimplifying because your whole life's background does come into play. 
perhaps in more complex situation, but still here as well. Your action of grabbing the milk carton was planned without paying too much attention, which reinforces that the brain has an intrinsic ability to analyze independent units and approximate a reality which you can navigate without having to consciously think about all these units. Here we saw a mistake because pertinent units were not accounted for in the analysis, the teens drinking the milk in the middle of the night. Analogously, the visual illusions we talked about in the first part of this podcast illustrate how flaws can happen in the process of your brain decomposing the visual scene in various properties and binding them together to produce unified visual experience. Albert Einstein said, Reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. The ultimate evolutionary drive for the generation of reality is the detection of sources of threats, pro-survival, and pro-reproduction. Detection of threat and pro-survival aspects of our environment are typically associated with pain and reward pleasure respectively. Furthermore, the construct of reality corresponds to 1. past events for learning and memory and 2. predicted events. Think of the herring illusion. It is hard to live in the now. When we feel bad in the moment, we think our current state represents our future. Our perception is so far from the truth. We'd like our state to change now, now, now. When we feel bad, we can repeat this sentence again and again. My current situation is not my permanent destination. We all tend to assess the future merits of any activity based on what it offers at the moment. Bruno Bethlehem, Psychanalyse des Contes de Fées, 1976. A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe a part limited in time and space he experiences himself his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness this delusion is a kind of prison for us restricting us to our personal desires and to affection affection for a few persons nearest to us Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole nature in its beauty. That was a quote by Albert Einstein. We are ready to move to part number five, the meaning of life. Yes, finally. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. This is Yves Sowey, logging out for the moment.